0: Well good morning, beautiful day outside in a beautiful time of year, isn't spring just beautiful, do you agree? So rich isn't it, with promise. We're looking at another um, parable this morning, we've been reading through parables for some weeks now and this morning's parable is, well at first glance anyway it's Somewhat simpler than the thorny one that David preached for us last Sunday morning. We're going to begin with Cheryl, Cheryl reading us the, um, the text of the psalm of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Thank you. Okay.
1: So this is from Luke. Chapter something or other. Um. (laughs) 18. 18, that's it. Um, Starting at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up. And prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted.
0: Thank you. You're a terrific reader, Gerald. You (laughs) You bring more colour to the characters than certainly than I do. Well, (coughs) I've got a a board over here to do a little bit of drawing on. Darren Thomas is by far the... uh, the best artist in church but he's preaching next weekend so I couldn't secure his services so you you get me instead and I'm not probably quite up to the standard but let's let's begin I'm going to draw for you first the the tax collector we'll put him over here you ready (laughs) wait till you see this Do you think? <laughs> I know, I know, but there's a, certain, there's a certain emotional reality to my art, I think. It's, it's, it speaks, doesn't it? It says in the text that the tax collector um, stands at a distance. He's, he's, he's removed himself from the centre, he's at the temple, but he's standing at a distance... It says that he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So, over here now, we shall draw the Pharisee. There we go. There we go. What do you think? I'm not sure whether they should have eyes or not. Eyes? Vote for Yes, hands up if they need eyes. Hands up if they don't need eyes. Ooh. It's very even split. I'm going to leave them. I don't want to complicate the image. It might distract you from the from the message. The pharisee it says stood by himself and that's a really important little detail he stands by himself so see if you can remember that and then he begins his prayer and he says God I thank you that I am not like other people robbers evildoers adulterers or even like this tax collector I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get he's very different isn't he and Jesus is portraying two extremely different characters one man who won't even look at heaven The other man who is quite confident, wouldn't you say? He's a self-made man and he likes little more than to talk about his maker. Not even a chuckle. (laughs) He's a self-made man and he likes to talk about his maker. Ah, Okay, I'll have to just change my settings for audience participation. Typically when we when we look at this parable, we, we start with a fairly clear thing, which is that our standing with God is not achieved or earned in any sense by our good deeds. It's given to us by the grace of God. And this is something that the Pharisee doesn't express at all, does he? He says, I fast, I give, I am not like that. He uses the pronoun quite a lot. We, on the other hand, can read many places in the New Testament. Here's Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. So this is the truth. We are justified by God, before God, not by what we do, but by the faith that we have in the Son, Jesus, who is our Saviour. Now that's a very simple reading and you could almost stop there or, or elaborate further on that thing. But to my mind it creates a problem because if you read it that way and you stop right there, it could leave me in a position like this. The Pharisee is saying, I thank God that I'm not like that. And then I can almost be saying in my heart, I thank God that I'm not like that. Do you see how that sort of fits? Because we are very used to Jesus having, we can hear his words. We can hear him saying about the Pharisees that they are blind guides, fools, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Those are from the Gospels. He said that they were serpents. He called them a generation of vipers and hypocrites. So we're quite used to the idea that, that, that the Pharisees were, were sternly criticized and rebuked. We don't really like Pharisees. In fact, we have the word in English now, Pharisaic, to describe somebody who is obsessively legalistic. So we come to this parable with, with a sort of a, a, a preconditioned view. And it's easy for me to say, well, I'm not like that. We need to probably just remind ourselves of what the characters in the parable would have been like to the Jewish year, to the people that um, Jesus was addressing. So, first of all, the Pharisee. I'm going to put a P here P for Pharisee. Ooh. The Pharisees in their day were certainly not to the Jewish audience, to the people of uh, the Jewish faith. The Pharisees were not bad characters at all. In fact, um, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian that you hear occasionally quoted, he writes about the Pharisees and describes them as being typically drawn from the common working classes or artisans and being very, very popular amongst the Jews because they were not superior in the way that the, the, the Sadducees... Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do you know what? The way, the way to remember this is this, that the, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see? <laughs> and the, and the, the Pharisees do. And this fact actually makes them popular because they believe in a future... They believe in resurrection. It's quite exciting. But they're drawn from the ordinary people, whereas the Sadducees are an an elite group who who were disliked. Most Jewish people would have had a great deal of respect and honour given towards the Pharisees because they saw them as people who were the ideal of faith and people who actually worked hard to make the law accessible and available and help people to fulfill its demands. A very different picture from the way we look at them. So, in their day, they were really quite popular. The tax collector, on the other hand, now that's not the letter you're expecting me to put there, and I'll explain why in a moment. The tax collectors were abhorred. Absolutely. So, the Romans had a a curious custom that when they invaded a country, took over a a city or a, a land, they then made the people that they had invaded pay the cost of the invasion. So, they levied taxes on the countries that they invaded until the cost of the invasion was paid for by the very people that were invaded. And the way they did this was that they had auctions where the, the Roman Senate would sell at a public auction the right to levy taxes. And for five years, if you bought this right, you could then levy taxes on the invaded people. Typically, these were pur- they, they were called publicans, and, and this right was purchased by senators themselves or by wealthy people, who then set up a sort of a, a tax-collecting business under them. And... Um, the names Zacchaeus and Matthew from the Gospels are, are examples of people who fitted into this layer of, of um, extortion underneath the publicans. Because the, the 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 Romans were so keen to get the full amount of money for their invasion paid for, they gave the tax collectors a wide license to do as they pleased to get the money. And so they, they were coercive, they were brutal. They knew that if they collected more than the Romans required, they could keep that. So over two or three levels, from the publicans down to the tax collectors, there's really horrid behaviour and, and organised crime, really. And the person who, who did the, the dirty work on the street, the tax collector themselves, were despised. They were abhorred because they were Jewish people working for the invading army. They were traitors. Q stands for Quisling. Have you ever heard the word Quisling? It's an old fashioned word. The name comes from a man Vikund Quisling who was a Norwegian soldier. And in the beginning of the the uh, Second World War in the in the early 40s Hitler had invaded France and Belgium and what it was it, Poland and then had to move further north to secure iron ore and that took him into Norway and there were a, a large number of Nazi sympathizers there and among them was a, a soldier by the name of Vokund Quisling and he worked proactively to make the <coughs> Nazi invasion of Norway successful. He worked behind the scenes so that this, the, the nation could fall to um, fascist rule. And that's a picture of him there, seeing him on the... He's on your left with the, the black hat, that is him. And he then was appointed by the Nazis to become a, a puppet prime minister. And and so through the war, he was the the ruler of of Norway, under the, the Nazi regime. And his name, Quisling, now if you look it up in the dictionary, it just means traitor. It means somebody who who takes power from an, from an invading army and rules in their place. Can you get a sense now of how different the Jewish people would have felt when they heard Jesus say this to the way we feel when we hear it? Because we're sitting in a different time with with other things that we've learned about tax collectors and Pharisees. But in the day, this was unambiguously the good guy and the quizzling was despised, abhorred, loathed because he was a traitor. He was one of their own people who had turned coat and was now acting violently in in what can only be described as a corrupt activity of taking away as much finance as he could from the community and passing them on. So when Jesus gives this parable, I think that you can imagine perhaps just how shocking it is, especially when we get to the, the very end of it, or almost the end, and we hear Jesus say, I tell you that this man, the quizzling, rather than the other, went home justified before God. That's a huge claim, to be justified before God. That's enormous, isn't it? This is the man who you would think he's a professional... Uh, I was going to say Christian, he's a, he's a professional Jew. He's given his life in, in, in obvious ways to serving God, and yet Jesus says, not him, it's this guy, the traitor, the criminal, the person who is... Um, very much the enemy of the audience that he's talking to. And so it's a very upside-down story, which Jesus does frequently, doesn't he? He turns things completely upside down. Why, Why do you think that Jesus is being so provocative in what he's saying? What do you think he's trying to dig away at? Because I think that this is where we need to allow ourselves to to not just see this as a question of, of theology, of, of how we're justified before God. I think Jesus is, is provoking a response that's, that's deeper than that. Perhaps the answer begins at the first line, which is this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus addressed this parable. If you look up righteousness, it's a simple word that we have perhaps made complicated and made religious. Righteousness just means, the Oxford Dictionary, the quality of being morally right or justifiable. Righteousness, the quality of being morally right. We've turned it into a religious word, when you hear it, it sounds like part of Christian life. We are justified before God. We are righteous before God. But let's allow it to be a simpler thing. I want to read it to you from the J.B. Phillips translation, which this is very popular when I was growing up. It's like a, a forerunner to the message, the Bible. The message Bible's a bit more dramatic than this, but I like this Bible a lot. And just listen to this, the way Jesus speaks in this translation. Then he gave this illustration to certain people who were confident of their own goodness and looked down on others. It's a much, well, it's a very simple language, isn't it? Confident of their own goodness. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed like this. God, I do thank you that I am not like the rest of mankind, greedy, dishonest, impure, or even like the tax collector there. I fast every week and I give away a tenth part of all my income. The tax collector stood in a distant corner, scarcely daring to look up to heaven, and with a gesture of despair said, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. I assure you, Jesus says, that he was the man who went home justified in God's sight rather than the other one. For everyone who sets himself up as somebody will become nobody, and the man who makes himself nobody will become somebody. I think, I feel, that Jesus is compelling me to make a careful assessment of myself. Could it be that I'm confident in my own goodness? That's the question that I hear the parable asking me. And I present that to you. Rather than use the word righteousness, put the word goodness in there and say, is it possible that we are sure that we are morally right, that we are good and that we look down on others? That's the the question that Jesus is posing. And... I think that that's got to pierce a level of armour, which we all have, which is our, our pride, our, our the confidence in ourselves. It even has to pierce, in a way, our religious thoughts because as Christians we can become immensely secure. We repeat the truth of the gospel to each other repeatedly and so we should. But it can leave us in a position where we become somewhat hardened to the idea that perhaps we lack humility and our confidence is overstated. I'm going to tell you a story now. And twice in the last month, a member of staff in our church has... has um, <laughs> who, who shall remain nameless? A, a nameless member of our staff who has... There's something su- senior about him, but that's all I'll say. But he has suggested that my stories can be long. And uh, and I, I guess that's true. But anyway, try this for a story. A fortnight ago, I was working at the Hyphen Library Gallery because I volunteer there on a Friday, and I, I, my job is to catalogue incoming books it's very interesting because I see them all first I have a little look in them and and one book came and I just opened it up and there's a picture of a ship in the book let's have the ship it's coming I'm sure the picture of the ship and the ship was I recognised it immediately have you got that ship picture there There's, there's 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 no ship picture there's no ship picture Oh, no. What about, the, what about the picture of the view of the harbour? Have we got that picture? No. Oh, Don't you hate it when the technology doesn't work and you're all ready for it? Okay, so picture, an old-fashioned ship with two funnels in the 30s. Its name was the Mariposa, and it had a sister ship, the Monterey. Now, I think it's weird that I know that because I was only a little kid. Like, I wasn't even born when these ships were were sunk. But they were sort of famous in Australian culture. They became troop ships that carried troops off to war. And the Mariposa and the Monterey were were luxury liners in the style of the old Titanic, but much smaller, but quite a thing. And when I saw this picture in the book, I recognised it immediately because in my family there was a story often repeated that my great aunt had gone to England, and in those days it was all by ship. I can remember when my great-aunt went to England and we had a calendar and we would cross off the the days of the six weeks that it took her to get there because she didn't fly, she went by ship. And sh- w- she'd been taken to Circular Quay, we lived in Sydney, and we lived in a house that my, my um, great-grandmother had purchased in 1920 and we looked down on Sydney Harbour, you can have to imagine it because... The picture's not there. I can't believe the picture's not there. But from our dining room table, we could see the harbour from sort of South Head, if you know the harbour at all, right round like this, almost to the opera house. And so my great-aunt Bernine had been dropped off at the ship. And then when they got home again, they realised that a camera was still in the house and she didn't have a camera. So the story is that my great-grandmother dispatched Hope. Now Hope was a chauffeur, a chauffeur gardener and he was sent with the camera down to the beach just which we could sort of just see there and he persuaded a, a fisherman to row his boat with, with Hope on board out into the middle of the harbour which you can see from our, our dining room windows and the ship let down a companionway, one of those you know ladders on the side, and a sailor came down and took the camera on board. And so, problem solved. <laughs> it's a terrific story, isn't it? And one other little detail. Hope was the chauffeur gardener because this house had a big three blocks of garden. It was an extraordinary place. And I, I lived in it for quite a few years in my childhood. And so, Mr. Hope had an off and his name was Mr. Treasure. Isn't that cool? Mr. Hope and Mr. Treasure? So I've been telling. The, I think it's just a fascinating, amazing story, and I've been telling it for a long time now because I'm oldish, and it took me forever to realise that when people hear this curious little story, it's a bit trivial, I know, but when they hear it, rather than hearing a story about an amazing adventure that this chauffeur had. Blah, 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 what they hear is that my family had a servant, or servants. And I didn't, it didn't click with me for a long time because I, I, I just didn't pick up on the signals. But I went to the library, I was at the library, and so straight away, when I'm, when I'm working away and I find something interesting, I sort of have to find a librarian to show it to, you know, oh, oh look at this. And I did, and once again, oh, servants, eh? <laughs> and you know, it took, it, I am still, <laughs> it took me so long to realize that I come from a privileged background but don't we all you know all of us in this room are at the, the very front of the train in terms of the the economy of the world we are we are privileged people I'm sure you know that but it took me such a long time to to sort of understand that and I re- I, I can be a terrible snob I I grew up with it, you see. And and so my, my grandmother and my great-aunt, the one that went on the ship, remember the one that went on the ship? <laughs> that one. With the servants? That, that one. If, if I said, well, what's a good example of a word? If I said I'm reading a book, they would be onto me like that because I left the G off. You're not reading a book, you're reading a book, yeah? And so they would, do any grandparents here today correct their grandchildren's grammar? I bet not. It's not what we do anymore, is it? But we were drilled in grammar and all things like that. When we had dinner, everybody had to sit around uh, after dinner and you had to find a word in the dictionary that nobody knew. That's no small task in itself. And then you had to find a word that nobody knew and then you had to explain what the word means and put it into a sentence and pass the dictionary to the left, left. And so my upbringing was sort of... Upper class really. And they served black coffee after dinner while the dictionary is being passed around. And there was milk and sugar there. You could have it if you wanted, but my grandmother always drank it black, and so did my great-aunt. Have I mentioned my great-aunt? She's the one that went on the show. <laughs> and with a servant. And, but you knew that you were meant to drink it black. You weren't meant to have sugar. And so we didn't. Here we are, eight years old, drinking black coffee after dinner. And still, this is a sort of a trivial example and this is all I want to point out. To me, still, if I hear somebody dropping a G off their words that end in G, be careful now because if you're talking to me after the service, I will be listening. (laughs) But if I hear somebody who drops a G, I don't believe them as much as I believe people who have good Gs. (laughs) Can you believe that? It's just something about the way I grew up makes me judge people who drop their Gs and other things. If, if I, I love to listen to, to the radio, to journalists, and if they don't speak English in a good way, I, they just go down in my opinion, and I think they're probably not telling the truth even. <laughs> All of which is to say that it's easy for us no matter what our background is, no matter what life has given us, it is easy for us to develop the habit of looking down on people. There's something about humanity where we, where we tend to split the world constantly into us and them. Happens everywhere, doesn't it? People that drive Holdens, people that drive Fords. Although that's a bit not so much anymore, given that Holden's shut. and <laughs> People who barrack for this football team... And people who barrack for that football team. I can't talk much about that because I don't understand it. But it really polarizes people, doesn't it? What about people who, and I don't understand this either, but people who like the Marvel Universe and people who like the DC Universe. There we are. I've left half of you behind because I, I don't understand that, but you probably don't either. But there are these two universes And you either like one or the other. But it gets more serious, doesn't it? And our, our lives are so open to being formed in negative ways. This goes right back to Cain and Abel, you know. One of them brings an offering that's approved and one of them doesn't. And this becomes the first murder. One is superior, one is inferior. And it dominates human culture from that moment onwards, this idea of a hierarchy, of of people who are better than others, people whose skin colour is better than other people's skin colour, people who belong at the top of the ladder and people who are at the bottom of the ladder. And we're, we're so easily formed with these prejudices, injuries, personal hurts that are received in our lives can leave us permanently with... With horrid feelings about maybe all the people of the opposite gender, or all people in authority, or or all people who drop the G's off their words, or who knows what. But we are so easily formed with prejudices. Now tell me, have we got a picture of Jesus? Or not even that? Yeah, we have him. got Jesus? I wonder what happened. Let's have the picture of Jesus. There he is. Well, there they are. We had an interesting speaker here a few months ago. His name was Barry Bursky. I I think that's how we pronounce his name, maybe. Do you remember he was a a Jewish man? And he had this great line. He said that that, um, depictions of Jesus are more Danish than Jewish. And isn't that true? So I just typed in um, image of Jesus, and there were 400 of the ones on the left... And then there's that one there. I was looking for that one because I heard a man interviewed on the radio a while ago and he was a, um, a forensic anthropologist, I think, from Manchester University. And he had um, used all the sources he could find to create an image of Jesus, which is what you see there on the right. And so he talked about having found... Skulls that were of the right date and the right place in the world, and beginning with that, and then using the techniques that forensic scientists use to build up the image of a face. And he talked about cl- clues that are in the scripture. He said that there's something telling when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus; they have to ask who he is because he doesn't stand out. He hasn't got piercing blue eyes that go Ooh, like that. He's just very, very ordinary. And he needs to be pointed out to the soldiers because he looks the same as everybody else. He pointed out that uh, that Paul talks about um, men not having long hair. It's, It's not what should be done, according to Paul. And so he gives him short hair. I don't know why all the other pictures of Jesus have sort of this wavy perm thing going on. It's odd, isn't it, though? Isn't it odd? And I put that up there this morning just to point out that even in our even in the realm of faith we're so inclined to tailor this into our version of of sort of superiority and inferiority can you see what i'm i'm trying to reach for here it's built into us and it is not it is not a good thing i wish that these were simple matters that as we became mature just dropped away from us and especially as we become followers of christ our attachment to our own superiority would just be dealt with quickly like that. But it isn't true. It takes us such a long time. And we continue to look down on people, down our nose on people. Jesus then, at the end of the parable, gives us... What will we call it? I don't know what to call it. It's a a sort of a remedy, it's a sort of a warning, it's a caution... For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's where the the parable ends. And it leaves the question for us, how do we humble ourselves? Because it does say that, humble yourself. How do you humble yourself? How do we begin to address or correct the extreme problem that Jesus is pointing out here. Remember that this this issue is so significant that Jesus says this man is justified before God but not this one. His superiority, his pride rules him out of being accepted at that moment by God. This man even though he is a practicing sinner a, a man of Terrible character who's exploiting his nation, the quizzling, and yet God says in his humility he's justified before God. That's extraordinary, and it should impact us and make us realize that this is no small matter. We live in a world where I don't, you don't need me to tell you, the world is is sort of breaking and 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 cracking into, into groups which have their very in, independent and unique versions of morality. Racism, for example, and it's, it's only one, is is heating up across the world. It's not a problem that's been solved by any means, and it's, it's bubbling away in our country too. All sorts of issues about preferences, gender, sexual preferences, um, human rights issues and the different ways that they are viewed the community is just breaking into more and more groups with strong ideologies and it seems to me that the worst thing the christian church can do about that is to maintain its stance as the world's policeman with all the answers and tell people telling people what's right and wrong we need to deal with ourselves so that in humility we can befriend people and earnestly share with people the love of God. I, I once labored under this really intense burden to try and convert everybody I met to Christ. I, I, I was discipled under a, um, a pastor who, was a, uh, an, who had been an alcoholic and so he, he lived in a very black and white world. And for him... Every conversation, every day of every week of every month was an opportunity to lead someone to Christ. And so I can remember having at one time a goal to give a tract. Do you remember little tracts? Did you ever have tracts? And I I was trying in my youth, you know, my late teens, early 20s, to give a tract to every single person that I encountered. What do you think of that? It's It's pretty full on, isn't it? And this, this burden fell on me so heavily because I, I felt that it was up to me to lead everybody towards the truth. Every single person I met, I had the answer. They needed it. That was the object. And it's a terrible weight to carry. And it lasted for years and years. And in, in a way, I, it's a bit like the story I told you before. It's, it's sort of taken me half my life to get away from this because... It wasn't until I stopped trying to tell everybody about God, really stopped it. It wasn't until I stopped it and began to appreciate the people in my world, not as potential conversions, but as people. People that I could embrace and love and communicate with and bring into my life, even small encounters. It wasn't until I did that that I began to speak to people about God, of all things. Because people actually do want to talk about God more often than you think. And if you're just not trying to flog it all the time, it actually happens and it's a glorious thing, you know? But there's so much to overcome to get to that. There's, there's the fear of how people will treat us. There's, there's the insecurities that lead us towards superiority over and over again. The hurts in our past, the prejudices, the things we inherit, the way we're formed by our culture, on and on it goes. And Jesus says, humble yourself. How how do you humble yourself? I've got a, a couple of things to leave you with as we come to the end of our service. In James 4, we read these words, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Just read that in the Amplified Version as well. Humble yourself with an attitude of repentance and insignificance in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This is tricky. You can't humble yourself so that God will exalt you, can you? Because that's not humility, that's ambition. You can't do that. It's 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 sort of confusing because the reward is the opposite of the action. It's like it's sort of like snakes and ladders. I heard this Fantastic thing on the radio recently. In England, large numbers of people go to car parks at night and play snakes and ladders. So all the car parks have a number and then somehow you go up the steps and down the lifts in car parks. Hundreds of people are playing snakes and ladders. It sounds really exciting, doesn't it? But it's a bit like this with humility. I'll humble myself so so that God will lift me up, but as soon as I lift it up, I realise that uh oh, I've got to humble myself again, or, or God will humble me, and back down we go. And it is a bit like that, isn't it? You find a place of humility before God, but who knows what will happen next, and pride will rise up, and, and, you, and, and so it goes. It's a very difficult thing. We must find humility. So I've got three suggestions for you. One comes from Romans 12. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. The second, in 1 Corinthians 4, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Have you ever thought that, Many of the things in which we take most pride are actually things for which we can take no credit. So I've I've mentioned before my the stumbling block of my height. I'm proud of how tall I am, but I've, I've got absolutely nothing to do with how tall I am, have I? It's not like as a kid I was getting up in the morning going, taller, taller, stretching. No, 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 I was just born this way. People that are handsome, like... What's the name of a handsome actor? I can't think of any. Somebody, a handsome actor. Julia Roberts, not handsome, but you know, people who look beautiful. They take pride in that. But should they? They were born that way. The country we live in. We're proud to be Australians. We were just born here, that's all. The suburb you live in. Who knows? So many things that we that we take credit for are not ours at all. And so this verse says, what do you have that you were not actually given? Not much, eh? God has given us everything. Let me read it one more time from the Living Bible. What are you so puffed up about? Isn't that great? What are you so puffed up about? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if... All you have is from God. Why act as though you are great, as though you've accomplished something on your own? Lastly, this morning, Jesus gave us some instruction about prayer. And when you, when you read it, this is the introduction to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, you might think that he was speaking directly to the Pharisee. Listen to what he says. When you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's like Jesus is talking to the Pharisee, isn't it? And when you pray... Do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus says, don't, don't pray like that. Don't, don't make a big spectacle of you praying. Go into a secret and private place. And then he gives us a really short, sparse prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It's really quite short, isn't it? It's done in three minutes. I've read books that turn every phrase or every line of the Lord's Prayer into an entire paragraph. Uh, chapter is what I meant to say. Every little bit turns into a chapter. How to pray the Lord's Prayer for three quarters of an hour. But Jesus said, just pray this sparse, fairly empty prayer. It's a magnificent prayer, no doubt, and we ought to pray. But why is there so little there? It seems to me that Jesus wants us to meet him and to listen to him and that prayer ought to be an activity of, of, of quietness before God, listening to him rather than babbling on and on, you see? And one other fascinating thing that Jesus says in describing this is go into your secret place and begin to pray. You are alone, you are in your secret place But the first word you say the Lord's Prayer is our, which is plural, isn't it? And it goes on from there all the way through the Lord's Prayer is prayed in the plural tense. Now, I think that's amazing because the beginning of the parable said the Pharisee stood alone. Do you remember? By himself. And there's a sense in which if we are truly humble, we are never alone. We are members of one another, Romans says. I am a member of you, you are a member of me. Even in my solitary, silent place of prayer, I am not on my own because we are the body of Christ. We we don't have superiority because I am not an individual. I am a part of the body of Christ. We are together the body of Jesus. Our, Our public Christianity must be matched by a genuine, private, intimate faith. If you want to achieve a measure of humility in your life, develop a private, intimate, genuine faith. Learn to be comfortable in God's presence. Learn to be quiet with God. Learn to be at ease and listen. And develop a humility... Which will allow us to be fruitful witnesses to God in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our communities. I'd like to um, close by praying with you, and this—the uh, prayer is not my own. I'm—I'm I'm reading a prayer that was written for—for for today by a very great friend of mine and colleague. We—we—we we were discussing this topic, and uh, he um, uh, has been a, a pastor and. I asked him if he'd write a prayer. And so I'd like to lead you with this prayer as we finish our service. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you that you are a great and good God, worthy of praise, worthy of worship. Thank you, too, that we can come into your holy presence Thank you for the free gift of your grace, which we can never earn. We cannot pay for it. We've done nothing to deserve it. But thank you because of your love. You've died to pay for our sins so that we can come back into relationship with you. Lord, we recognize how challenging this parable is. We confess we've not only been confident in our own righteousness but we confess that we have looked down on others. Have mercy on us as sinners. Help us recognize our own status. We are more wicked than we ever realized, but thank you, thank you, thank you. We are more loved than we ever dreamed. In gratitude, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.